You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Hello there, you're very welcome to Second Helpings of the Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and in this programme you'll have the opportunity to hear some previously aired interviews, including the one with West Limerick's Iman McDonnell when she came into the studio to talk about her debut cookbook and my chat with Laura Kelly when I met her to view the art collection at Kelly's Resort in Rosslare. But first, let's remember when Food & Wine magazine's restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley came into the studio to tell us about her visit to Tehran. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Rachel, you're very welcome to the studio this evening and we're going to talk about something a bit different. Your latest travels, in fact, as opposed to a restaurant review and you recently paid a visit to Iran. Yes, <laughs> and that surprise face accompanies uh, every conversation that we have about this. Uh, yes, I mean, my, my wanderlust is pretty evident from anybody who has a look at my Twitter feed. Uh, we tend to take random trips as often as we possibly can. Um, we just basically work hard all year to be able to, to go away. So the most recent trip we took, we had to go to Dubai anyway. Um, and Dubai is a great hub, you know, it connects to everywhere uh, that, that direction and, and sort of the Middle East and further. Um, so we did the old fashioned trip of taking out an atlas and seeing what was close and what could we go to see while we were over there um, and we settled on Iran and we knew it's going to become a lot more popular as a tourist destination the next couple of years because things are changing there quite rapidly uh, and like everything else we kind of wanted to get there first and to, to see it in its authentic state. I want to ask you first about the logistics. And it's a good question. There. So tell us how you get there. Yeah I mean it's a very good question. There's so little information about travelling to Iran that um, it's something I've been asked an awful lot about on Twitter and Instagram um, and because of that reason there's just no information so physically getting there uh, in terms of flights very very easy you go to Dubai and from Dubai you go to Tehran um, or you can go to Istanbul and from Istanbul to Tehran so the flight uh, costs are very very cheap we threw, we flew Azerbaijan Air and I think it was like $90 to fly from from Azerbaijan to Tehran Okay so let's start in Ireland are you going out of Shannon or Dublin? You're go- sorry you're going from Dublin because you, you can fly directly to Dubai from there uh, you can also fly directly to Istanbul from Dublin too um, and again the flight costs aren't massive if you fly at good times of the year um, and when you get there then you'd connect to Tehran and the ter- te- Dubai to Tehran I think is about two and a half hours and Tehran is the capital city of Iran yeah exactly a massive massive city I think there's something approaching 20 million people living there um, now the visa situation is a little bit different as well uh, so in terms of logistics it's probably important to, to mention that we're one of the few countries that can get visas on arrival uh, in Iran uh, British citizens can't American citizens can't uh, so we're lucky in that respect now having said that we had heard kind of a mixture of experiences in Tehran airport so we just thought it would be easier if we went to the embassy in Dublin and got the visas earlier so we did that and it was very easy we arrived that morning spoke to a fabulously helpful gentleman and that afternoon we picked up our visas straightforward um, you have to wear obviously the traditional head covering to get the visas and to get your photographs taken and all the rest of it to get the visas and to get mm. the photographs taken yeah. my goodness yeah. yeah I'm sure like I wouldn't have known that a lot of people would wouldn't know that. You do have to research quite a bit, but again, they're so helpful in the embassy. You can you can just call them and and discuss it with them. Um, I had heard. Uh I, I hadn't actually heard it from anybody in the embassy but I've just heard on sort of the grapevine that you can't have stamps let's say from Israel or anybody or anywhere approaching Israel um, on that but um, we had been there and that, I was just <laughs> going to say did we not have a conversation it didn't, in the it past didn't cause us any problems you being in Israel yeah <laughs> yeah so I, I was a little bit worried when we presented our passports because I'd heard horror stories of them you know questioning you about your movements in Jordan and things like that um, Israel doesn't stamp your passports anymore uh, for this reason so there was no Israeli stamp on our passports but there was only one Jordanian stamp which kind of gives the game away it means you crossed over by land um, but they didn't pay any attention straight through and of course one of the big things about doing all this travel is to get your passport stamped I like know. we like to get the stamp on it especially if you've been somewhere different and you travel a yeah. lot it's it's just I suppose it's just a pragmatic decision they made in Israel they just give you slips of paper essentially they stamp those slips of paper they're important to keep them on you obviously while you're moving around the country and exiting but um, 
it, it can cause difficulties I know for travelling to Lebanon and um, Syria uh, which I won't be going to just yet I don't think um, and obviously Iran so uh, but we had no problems it was all very very easy and everyone was incredibly helpful and uh, we had no issues when you come in, in the air, on the airplane alright um, the moment you land you have to start donning the headscarf and um, you know over, overly uh, enthusiastic PDAs or anything like that you just have to kind of get in the in the mindset of a different country and different culture What are they like towards women because you have to wear the headdress I think that immediately conjures up for me a notion that women aren't held in the same regard as men are Yeah and, and it's a good question and it's one that, that I was quite interested in exploring while I was over there because like you when you can only sort of um, you know make presumptions based on images and uh, immediate reactions to, to a woman having to dress a certain way um, it does lead you down one train of thought what I would say is that the people I spoke to and we spoke to an awful lot of people they are the most incredibly friendly uh, people I've ever encountered in my life I thought Cubans were friendly this is nothing compared to Iranian people or Persian people they were walking up to us in the street and shaking our hands and thanking us for coming and wanting to come back and to invite us back to their houses and to hear where we come from and what we think of their country and in many cases to tell us that they don't agree with the regime and the regime doesn't represent them which I thought was very interesting uh, what we see on CNN or what we see on Sky News they were very much at pains to explain isn't them so they're, they, they're Persians um, and they're constantly telling us it's very different to uh, the Arab tradition so um, you, you, a lot of the women just wear the basic headscarf and it's loosely wrapped around their heads um, so it's not like when you go to Saudi Arabia or you go to um, many, many parts of the UAE where a lot of the women would uh, cover up entirely you only have to wear the chador when you go into mosques so um, it's, it's, it's not as um, all encompassing as some of the, the other Middle Eastern countries um, and generally speaking everyone was incredibly educated women are educated at the same level as men um, they do have women only carriages but I got the impression that was more safety aspect uh, on the metro um, than a deliberate sort of deliberately restricting uh, ones so for example women could sit in any carriage they wanted but men weren't allowed in the women only carriage so while initially I was going jeepers this is very uh, you know, I don't like segregation of any kind then I came to realise that it was an option it wasn't something that was put in place it was it was a decision that people could take one way or the other You mentioned there about people inviting you back to mm. their homes did you take anybody up on their invitation? We couldn't we didn't have time um, unfortunately they, they all wanted us and traffic in Tehran is just bananas I I thought I saw crazy traffic and crazy driving in Jordan, but it's nothing compared to these guys. They, when it gets busy, they just sort of take over slip roads onto motorways and drive the wrong way up and force everyone else to turn around. So the, the direction of traffic is constantly fluctuating and changing. So roundabouts, nobody really follows one direction. They just kind of enter it and go whichever way they want to. So um, we, we wouldn't have taken, we wouldn't have asked somebody to travel sort of like two hours out to their house, you know, to collect us and bring us back or anything like that. Um, so we could couldn't unfortunately take them up on it but we had some really interesting conversations and learned an awful lot about the people as opposed to the government. We must talk a bit about the food now and the cuisine, yes. Middle Eastern cuisine obviously has a great reputation so what, sort of, so, yeah. what sort of foods did you get to enjoy when you were there? And well, We were very lucky, we arrived um, quite accidentally uh, I'd love to tell you it was on purpose but we hadn't a clue, we arrived at Novrus which is the New Year celebration, it's a huge celebration in Iran it takes seven days in fact this year was seven days of celebration which meant that we really got to see sort of the culture at its best uh, really exposed so families were out in the streets enjoying uh, markets and um, you know, presentations and traditional uh, presentations and arrangements on the table of the Haftzi which is a way of celebrating the new year the Persian new year so we got to see an awful lot and, and experience a lot in terms of food um, so we went to the Grand Bazaar which is one major place that every foodie has to go to um, unfortunately some of it was closed because of uh, new year so they take that as a time to sort of clean up businesses and make any repairs that are necessary but we, there was still plenty going on there it's 1700 years old it's an incredibly old marketplace um, would have been obviously a site of the old Silk Road so a real mixture of cultures and a real mixture of heritage is there the market like every Middle Eastern market was full of dates and nuts they're beginning to saffron scented pistachios for example and then dried preserved fruits such as soured apricots and these wincingly tart mulberries they're so sweet um, and then sheets of flat fig uh, which was interesting it really showed me how they literally get the fig <laughs> into the fig rolls um, then uh, people go around eating flatbreads with meat and cheese toppings there would be live animals and not so live animals um, at the market so it was it was a, a very invigorating and almost overwhelming space uh, in terms of sights and scents and sounds So did you 
you enjoy any street food when you were there? Absolutely. Uh, and we pretty much do it everywhere we go. Um, we kind of throw caution to the wind and pack some atelium and just go, yeah. <laughs> go for it. I was going to say that. Yeah. But it's kind of different though. Everywhere um, that we went to in Iran and indeed in much many parts of the Middle East um, were scrupulously clean. So I've been to parts of Asia where you're kind of going, oh God, and you're crossing yourselves before you, you eat something. But we weren't as worried here. Um, they, they have kebab is, is a massive staple food over there, but it's not like the kebab we have here. It's not some greasy, sweaty, quasi-meat that's just scraped into a bun and layered with ketchup and handed to you at four o'clock in the morning. It's completely different over there. Um, so it's moist, flavoursome lamb. Uh, a lot of the time it's lamb. Some beef. Um, they just slice it off the, the lovely turns, uh, the, the spits that they have, put it into some fresh, hot bread. The bread over there is amazing. Um, layer on some mint-scented sauces, some vividly green salad and present it to you in a piece of tinfoil and it's about 80 cent or euro so cheap so so cheap um, you could pick up like a, a cup of doog as well alongside it which is sort of like a savoury yoghurt type drink uh, seasoned with mint and you've got a fabulous picnic they're big into the picnics over there as families so it's great to be able to sit down and sort of join them and have a chat with your street food everywhere you ate was it all very reasonably priced very much so um, I, I mean a really sort of like slap up meal we went to for example uh, Milad Tower which is uh, one of the, the major architectural focuses of the of, of Tehran it's the sixth or seventh tallest building in the world or tower in the world um, and that would be very very high end they have a revolving restaurant up at the very very top much like many other cities and that's sort of considered extremely high end uh, and the tickets there everyone told us were enormously expensive so we kind of handed over our money with trepidation and everything is in massive amounts so 500,000 rials or 14 euro for example um, so you end up counting out millions being hopelessly confused um, but the that slap up meal was 80 euro per person so and was it worth it was it compared to what you're getting on the street there for 80 cents um, well the food was great what was brilliant about it was that it was a buffet so we got to taste every type of Persian food up there and buffet isn't the same as it is here buffet is very well respected over there because the idea is that you're tasting lots of different things and it's also freshly presented and consumed so quickly that you don't get that sort of stagnancy that you get in a lot of buffets over here with something sitting in a bain-marie for hours um, so it's uh, it was a great way for us in particular as tourists to be able to taste everything and the food was great but I would agree with you I think the street food was nicer I often think you see places like that they're so touristy that you're not getting you're not just not okay they might say it's very high end but you're just not getting the same level of quality as you would down the street really I think so there was just that that without sounding um, sort of uh, trite about it you didn't have that love and attention you know and you do miss that that individual connection to the food that you get from the guy on the street uh, for whom this is his whole life every day seven days a week for the last 20-30 years you know How long were you there for? We were actually only there for four day, four nights five days so we didn't And in terms of hotels then is, are there lots of just the, like the Hilton type hotels or where do you stay when you go? No the Hilton doesn't exist over there um, or indeed any any American chain or indeed any chain really um, they're just not set up for tourism because um, you know since the revolution 1979 travelling there has been a little bit more complicated um, they, they were under embargoes for years so they're, they don't have access to a lot of the sort of um, the things we take for granted I suppose in western societies in terms of uh, tourism and hotels and things like that also uh, a lot of things are limited so in, a lot of internet access is limited by the regime as well so the, for example um, limited Twitter, no Facebook, um, a lot of sites are banned uh, and your, your emails and things that are monitored anyway. Um, so finding a hotel was not easy. We ended up doing it via TripAdvisor. That was the only way because there are no hotels in booking.com, for example, no hotels in hotels.com, nothing like that. I don't believe they have access to those sites um, so they can't advertise there. Um, so we found one there and it was fabulous. It's called Hotel Scan, and uh, I'll be writing about this at some point on the blog because there's so much information to to, to tell. But um, it was great. It was one of, would be considered one of the higher end hotels there. Um, it was what we would call maybe a comfortable three star and it was 80 euro a night. The people were incredibly helpful there and it was really, really central. It was around the corner from the US Embassy which was always interesting to have a look so how did you book it? You couldn't book it online. Did it you phone them or did you just turn up and hope they had a bed? Well, we were going to do that, but the gentleman at the embassy um, told us it's Novrus, you'd have to be insane. You might have to sleep in the street if you don't make a booking. So we were glad to get that advice. So we emailed them, um, which was a bit of a comedy of errors, but eventually we got there. It was sort of like going back in time. They, they 
a lot of trust. Uh, they said, no problem, we'll keep a room for you. And of course, me being me, I was like, but don't you want credit card details or something? And they're like, no, no, we'll see you then, you know. Um, You'd nearly feel better giving them a credit exactly, card detail exactly. because at least when you turn up, it's like, but I gave you my credit card details. I have a, a proper booking. Exactly, exactly. But there's just, there, there isn't really that, um, there's just no tradition of sort of hotels or tourism. Not yet, it will change, but not yet. It's very, very new. And you do sort of need a hotel as well. There, are a lot of, there is a Swiss company that does a sort of Airbnb out of Tehran. Um, but you kind of initially need, for the first trip anyway, you need a concierge to be able to write things in Farsi for you and things like that. Well, it sounds great and I look forward now to your piece about it whenever you write it. It'll be on the blog, you say? Yep, on rmkeely.com. Fantastic. We look forward to that. And thanks for coming in tonight to share that with us because it is all incredibly interesting, as are all your travels. (laughs) And we will talk again soon. We will indeed. Thanks, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to a second helping show of best possible taste when you get a chance to hear previously aired interviews. Still to come, a chance to hear the interview with Iman McDonnell about her debut cookbook. But before that, we're returning to Wexford, where I was blown away by the amazing art collection at Kelly's Resort, Ross Lair, and was delighted that Laura Kelly took time out to talk to me about it. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Laura, I'm blown away by the art collection here in Kelly's Resort in Ross Lair. It's just incredible. Tell us how you started, how the family started to collect the art. Well, I'm so happy to <laughs> to hear that you enjoy the collection here. I suppose there is something for everybody um, and that's what we find here with the art collection. It started in actually 19, in the 1950s with my grandparents, uh, Billy and Breda Kelly. They actually invited um, Kenneth Webb at the time to come down and to display his pieces as well as his students' pieces here in the hotel and they were really just blown away by the reaction that they got and that the interest that people had in this art and I think that's really where their passion for art began and at the end of the exhibition they ended up buying a lot of the paintings that were on exhibition in the hotel so I suppose you could say that was really the starting point for Kelly's and the art collection. Because art can really make a difference to the ambiance be it in a restaurant somebody's home or a place like Kelly's and there's great warmth added to the the hotel, I think, because of the the range of art and the difference in the different styles with the artists. But you have lots of fantastic Irish artists here. And there's one artist that I absolutely adore, and that's John B. Valley, who's from Armagh. Oh my God, those oil paintings that you have, and they're huge. We do, we're very lucky, I have to say, to have a lot of John John B. Valley paintings here in Kelly's. Actually, the, the history of having the Vallely paintings here in Kelly's was that it started off in the 1960s. The Irish Arts Council wanted to promote Irish artists within, um, yeah, within the country, really. And what they did was that they set up joint ventures with hotels like ourselves, where they went on to jointly purchase paintings. And it was really through this scheme that my grandfather and my grandmother would have discovered uh, Vallely and they would have bought many paintings through this scheme. Um, After my granddad passed away, actually, they probably bought over 20 paintings through this scheme jointly with, um, with the Irish Arts Council. However, following my grandfather's untimely death in 77, my granny, who's a very great businesswoman, and, you know, she just was very passionate about art. She actually made it her mission to buy back all the paintings the half that the Arts Council had, which meant that the hotel, it was part of our own personal collection then after that. And it's really through that Vallely would have been one of the major paintings that painters that would have been discovered through that along the likes of um, Morris McGonagall also. I don't know if you know, he would have been one of my grandparents' favourite artists at the time. We actually have a private dining room dedicated to Morris McGonagall around the back of the hotel where we do private functions. Another person through that scheme would have been Nora McGuinness. So there was a lot going on back then already. But you're right, it really does 
trigger something within people and I think it really adds to Kelly's it's nearly part of the identity of Kelly's now at this stage and you have people who arrive at the hotel and they don't know anything about art nor do they know that we have quite an extensive art collection and you find people who might have never considered art before starting to comment and interested and I always remember my father saying because for a while there was this painting on the end wall and it was a white canvas and it had a big orange it was a column in us actually and it was had a big orange block that looked like it was leaking and it was the biggest talking factor of the hotel because art is so objective that either you like things or you dislike things but to us what's interesting is that even if you dislike a painting it's triggered an emotional reaction within you that has caused you to discuss it with someone as dad said the man came up to him and goes I really don't like that painting and dad said okay he said that's fantastic and he was like what do you mean it's fantastic he said when have you ever spoken to me about art before and he said Never. And he goes, so that's fantastic. You don't like it. That's great. You formed your own opinion on it. And I think that's where the fun of art comes. There's something for everybody. Have you any idea how many pieces are in the collection? And of course, we must point out that the collection consists of uh, paintings, photographs, sculptures, Sculptures. bronzes. There's more to it than just the actual paintings. I suppose we also have the crockery in the hotel. Googie would have been commissioned to do the crockery in the hotel. Our menus were commissioned and designed by William Crowes here. So yeah, actually you're right. There's encompassed into everything. You've built up a really good relationship with a number of Irish artists that, you know, it, it has kind of overlapped from the art and the wall to as you say the menus and you have a couple of suites as well that are, we are named after some artists. We have our Tony O'Malley suite um, and also our William Crozier suite who would be dedicated to two very well like artists that we really respect to and always have within the hotel. The other artist that I want to highlight is Neil Shawcross because he's another he's another Northern Irish artist and people might recognise his art because he would do Campbell's soup tins or, or Heinz and he actually then has, has done a painting of your own wine. Yeah, of my mother's wine. So my mum's from chateauneuf du Pap and they're from the vineyard, the Claude du Pap. And uh, yeah, Neil Shawcross is just... A fantastic man and we love meeting him every time we see him but uh, he's done some fantastic pieces for us in the hotel and that being one of them and it was just he's just such a lovely man <laughs> if you had to pick a favorite piece do you know which one it would be no and people ask me this all the time I really don't know and you know what surprises me is that it changes and I do often have favourite paintings maybe on a specific day but the next day it mightn't be the same favourite painting I walked through the dining room today I think at the moment I love the Louis Labraki in the dining room that that's one of my favourites now I have to say but but then some days you walk through and there's other paintings that just you know I think it really depends on your mood and how you feel on the day that I just find it changes all the time which one's my favorite one I mean even I think the <laughs> painting that we get a huge reaction to is the pink bunny rabbit at the front reception so it's by uh, Jerry Biche who is a French artist but it was just actually dad was passing a gallery in France he was just walking I mean he's not well known here nor would he be huge over there but dad was passing a gallery and saw this huge pink rabbit in the window and was like I have to have that he just fell in love with it and he ended up getting it from the hotel but it's actually it's funny because it's got a lot of the children involved in art a little bit that rabbit because every little girl wants to be taken you know their photograph taken in front of this giant rabbit and this year actually the girls in the kids club have put together like a little um 
tour of the art for the kids as well to try get them like involved and just ask them their opinions and draw pictures of their favorite art just to try get the kids involved in what's going on as well well you know now like a number of the the sculptures and they're pretty big like just the perfect size for a child to be climbing on or sitting on so i think it's great that you're not you know you don't have them in class cages because the number of times now i've had to say to my dad don't touch it don't touch it come away god knows how much it costs please don't break it well the main one for that is the Anthony Scott the dog the big dog in the garden the kids are I think it's probably the most photoed sculpture in the world every kid gets up on top of it is hanging out of his tail you kind of wonder how the tail is still on him he's very sturdy he's been there for years and he doesn't seem to be going anywhere and the one that's at the entrance to the hotel then my children and I were trying to decide what exactly is it it's very abstract that's the fun of being abstract you can interpret things in any way you want i it's an abstract horse from what i i gather but uh, different people interpret things different ways but it's stunning at the entrance isn't it it really gives Uh, the entrance the wow yeah it does and well let's just say people have been up on top of that as well and that's pretty big (laughs) So every year then, does everything go back up in the same place or do you mix it up? Because even in the, I'm amazed that even in the bedrooms, there's original art in each of the bedrooms as well. We, We don't move everything around every year because certainly there are pieces that just were nearly made for a certain position Mm. and they look great there but we do like to move things around a little bit so that people I think even if you have a wall of painting even by moving one painting randomly it it gives you a whole new perspective on the art so people it's nice I think it generates a bit more of a reaction people start looking for their paintings again their favourite ones the next year when they come back and I think it's good to move them around from time to time you don't want to get used to seeing them in the same position and you never sell anything it's here for no. life you hang on to it well at the moment anyway you know, if somebody came up and said I want that Andy Worrell Debbie Harry with the beautiful red lips there out of the ivy uh, let me just say I think dad wouldn't part with her too easily he has a, a soft spot for Debbie Harry there on the wall <laughs> she is fabulous she is. I don't think he'd part with her very uh, very quickly no we have been offered but all the paintings here in the hotel have been bought really through love it hasn't really not so much as an investment it was never looked at as an investor it was more looked at because of the love and the passion for the art so at the moment no we don't plan on selling anything in the future who knows but um, as I say to dad I give out to him because I say you, between my grandparents and between you you've left me no wall space what am I meant to do when I want to add to the collection oh, so I'm not sure what we're going to do my mother would always say you'll find a space for it there's always a space <laughs> yeah. somewhere you'll always find a nook or cranny now before we finish up um, photographs there's lots of lovely photographs and there's a collection there that I noticed and it's of nuns yes that's the Jackie Nickerson tell us the story behind that Um, Jackie Nickerson is an American photographer I think and uh, she came to Ireland and did a whole collection called Faith so she went around and discovered you know went to the the monasteries and things and it's it's a whole collection so we have five of them now in in ours but I just think they're brilliant they make me smile every time you go by and you have the nun who's carrying the eggs with the big smile on her face but what's amazing is that actually it's it the collection was done not that many years ago but people have come to the hotel being like I know that lady on that picture I know that nun or that priest and people people know them or were taught by these people and it's just so interesting but that's something that 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 the the faith collection with the nuns is something that definitely is definitely a talking point in the hotel and the other photographs of kelly's back in the day and you can look at how it has changed over the years that must be a lovely collection to look at i suppose it is well they would have been personal photographs taken over the years by by family and um, my great 
grandfather was an avid photographer so a lot of the photography the old pictures that you see a lot of them would have been him that would have would have taken them um, but I suppose there's we're 101, 121 years this year so there's a lot of history and a lot of photographs to be taken over that many years I love the one of somebody was getting out of a boat and they're actually on the back of is it over there that's my grandmother oh that one yeah I saw that earlier yeah that's fabulous that's my grandmother being taken out yeah and it it says transfers by there's a little caption on it transfers by see by Billy Kelly yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) that's a cool photograph it's lovely yeah yeah Yeah, it's just lovely to walk around and to look at them and just take time out and, you know, just absorb the different colours, the different themes of them. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks very much. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so happy to hear that you enjoyed. (laughs) You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to a second helping show of best possible taste when you, the listener, get a chance to hear previously aired interviews. Our final interview of this episode of Second Helpings features West Limerick's Iman McDonnell. Iman visited the Best Possible Taste studio to talk about her debut cookbook, The Farmette Cookbook, Recipes and Adventures from My Life on an Irish Farm. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Amen. you're very welcome to the studio. I'm delighted to have you here. Congratulations on your fabulous book. Thank you so much for having me, Sharon. I cannot believe now it is, what, 18 months since you were here. It was Thanksgiving. You brought in lovely goodies and I'm delighted to return your tray, your knife and your jar. I know. Thank you. Thank you. That was so lovely. I remember I brought the Parker House rolls They were in. delicious with the salt, the sea salt on them. They were lovely. Yeah, mm, loved them. And yeah. the butter and everything that you'd made yourself. Yeah. And you've been making a lot of butter since. I all have. Around the country at Electric Picnic and different places. Yeah, and next week I'm going to be making it at Ballyvillan House. I'm doing a um, workshop there, and then we'll also be making butter in. Jeffrey and I will be going to Lit Fest and doing it this year too. Yeah, I do. I was thinking about it today that I just I'm just like this butter maker going around everywhere. So, but could you imagine now? 10 years ago that this was what your life was going to end up being that you were going to be sitting with a fantastic beautifully published book about food no I could not I honestly I just I think about it all the time and especially recently because I'm doing the launches and things and meeting a lot of people and um, you know having to promote the book and I'm just thinking about like the whole experience and I mean I think everybody's lives are at the end of maybe a series of improbable coincidences but this does feel extraordinary to me like I, I honestly was never a big Ireland uh, f- uh, phone or whatever you want to say where people, you know, a lot of people in America are very smitten, very um, obsessed with Ireland because they have Irish roots perhaps or even if they don't. But yeah, I never pictured myself being over here marrying a farmer, learning, you know, how to grow my own and cook everything and do everything from scratch. So it's been quite a journey. Yeah. For me, coming down from Belfast to West Limerick was a bit of a culture shock. It was a bit of a culture shock now. So trying to imagine what it was like moving from Minneapolis, having worked in New York to West Limerick, it it must have been a serious culture shock. Um, Yes, it was. And but I think ultimately, um, you know, I think the shock of it and you might really agree with me but it comes down to not having those friends and family close to you like you would have had I mean it is yeah it is the city to the country is a shock and we in fact we lived in Adair at first because I didn't think I'd be able to move straight onto the farm I thought that Adair would kind of bridge that you know the difference between cosmopolitan and total country life which it really didn't do because you know Adair is charming but is it is kind of a medieval little village town but um I miss my friends and family more than anything and then um but once we got onto the farm and then I had a little boy had a baby then that's when I think the real culture shock came in where I felt really alone and that you know the nearest supermarket was really far away and I was just I was gonna have to figure out how to do everything on my own 
and then I did. But yeah, it's a huge culture shock. Was it at that stage that you really got into the growing your own and making your own butter? And your mother-in-law, Peggy, was very much on hand at that stage, was she? She was, yeah. So she was always somebody to emulate. Like she just had this effortlessness in the kitchen and you just... You know, I would often, I would always be looking at her going, okay, so because she, she was a teacher, she did grow up on a farm, but she was from another part of, she was from Cork, and she had to come and assimilate into, you know, the McDonald family farm. And she was a blow in. She was a blow in, as you say. Blow ins, yep. Yeah, but somehow she would just, she, she in the kitchen, she was just had this really calm nature about her, no matter if she was cooking for two people or like, 50 it was always the same and I always just was trying to crack that like figure you know I'm gonna have to be like that eventually which seemed like such a huge challenge and it still is I'm still not anything close to Peggy but she did teach me a lot and I miss her so much and are there any of her recipes in the book um yeah there's a apple tart her apple tart is in there well her her whole voice is really throughout the book I mean she's she every recipe I've ever written has her voice you know I can hear her talking to me about you know that that won't work or that'll work but her gooseberry jam is in there Peggy's gooseberry jam Peggy's apple tart um this the lovely Irish country salad I'm not sure if they do that as much in the north but one of the the first things that she actually served to me which is really just simple was um this just beautiful country salad of like a potato salad and a little ham and boiled egg and tomato and that kind of country salad thing and that's not something you know that's not very difficult but simple things like that you know you just bring it brings her back home to us you started writing a blog. At what stage did you start doing that? Okay, so I started writing the blog um, in 2011, I believe, or 2010. Um, actually, let me think about that here. 2008, 9, 2010. My father passed away the year before, and basically that year after he died, I was back you know, in Ireland, and it was kind of a blur and had toddler and Richard was gone farming and at the time I, I hadn't gone onto the farm and wasn't working on the farm I was just really home with Jeffrey and trying to do my best to figure out what to do <laughs> you're on the internet like a lot of yes just after we have kids we were on the internet and probably the iPhone and everything wasn't around then so much at that not time. as much no. I think I had a Blackberry mm. I did when I moved here I, I had a Blackberry and I was very much I was like Head I, off I was yeah yeah I was breastfeeding with Blackberry um too but um I, yeah, I was alone. I felt really lonely. And really, it was a way to reach out and see if I could connect with other women, whether they be farming or just, you know, as you say, just connecting. So I started writing. I think the first thing I wrote, I remember I typed out, oh, what did I, I just was like, you know, that I, it was really hard. I was really struggling at first. And I can't remember exactly what I typed, but I deleted it right away because it sounded like a crazy woman. <laughs> and then eventually, um, it, you it, it, this Marie Lavery from the Farmer's Journal came to me and said, do you want to start writing a column? Because it was just writing more or less about experiences, not as much about food, but just about my, the differences I've found between the city, American city and Irish country. She thought was funny. Like I went to a fashion show, I won't say where or whatever, but, um, and a woman asked me if I was horsey and I didn't know what that meant at the time. And I really was offended by it. And I had wrote this whole big funny thing up about it. Marie thought that was hilarious. So I started doing that. And then eventually, of course, yeah, the food thing. I was I was driving ungodly uh, distances to go into town and do shopping and get things that were convenient. Food. Like pizza, like there's La Cucina pizza. I would drive into Limerick and get that because I, I wanted convenient. This is way back, you know. And eventually I realized that I'm not going to be able to sustain that. I'm not going to be able to drive in and out. I've got a whole farm here in front of us and you know took an organic growing class and like when I sort of never looked back I just started growing really started growing and doing so much of our own stuff on the farm you're clearly very passionate about it now so whenever you look back and think about the distances that you drove to get those foods do you shake your head oh I do horror? it just really it makes it just it kind of boils my blood a little bit but you know because first of all it's just this t terrible carbon imprint and like how how irresponsible yeah I do I really do 
So that was you writing then about the food and then did you kind of get into photography or you knew people that were in photography because you host these getaways for people that are into food styling and, and taking lovely photographs of food, the lens and larder it's called. Yeah, and it sounds are, wonderful. Yeah. So we have one coming up next week with Renee Kemps um, who's coming from Amsterdam. Um, yeah. I think Donald Skeen was probably the one who inspired me to start doing, caring more about photography on the blog and and the food photography aspect of it. I went um, up to Dublin for a food bloggers thing and met him and just, yeah, once you start, you get that bug of, of photographing food. Um, because you were producing commercials I was. in the States and then you produced a short movie here called Small Green Fields and Donald Skehan was in that. He was, yeah. Yeah, he was, I was looking at that the other day. He looks just like so young. I mean, he is he young. He young. still look, he looks young, but that, you know, that film was, what, now four years ago. Um, yeah, so that kind of brought things kind of full circle too. I was able then to, see, I what had happened was I was doing so much food at home on my own and stuff like that, but then I was meeting all these artisan producers and farmers and things just through the food blogging circuit and it was just like this quiet providence of real Irish food that was just so intriguing to me and I felt at the time I'd pitched some articles I was very brazen and I thought I got the editors for the New York Times um, emails and I pitched um, some pieces on Irish food and how incredible it was and you wouldn't believe it and this and of course you know they were just like whatever so I said I'm going to do this film and I got my filmmaker friends over and we did that it was one of the best experiences I think I've had and that actually got to air on all the Aer Lingus transatlantic flights for one summer and it did like a film festival thing in the U.S. and um, things like that but yeah I guess because I had the background visually that the food photography thing kind of came naturally and I'm um, and I really enjoyed it although when I was shooting food for commercials and stuff I wasn't it wasn't my favorite thing you know but anyway you didn't have the love for it then though you probably didn't have the, the appreciation for what yeah. went into the food or it maybe was yeah conven- convenience type food was it it was things like yeah. yeah it was it was like pizza and stuff like big brands and like a, a lot of that um high speed filming where you're looking at like slow motion pepperoni slices in the air and takes you know some that shot will take like an entire day to do and it's just boring you know (laughs) but you would have an appreciation for food styling stuff you know if you had that experience and so I shot my book and everything too I mean I photographed the book there did you do these photographs I did I did yeah. They're fabulous. Um, I love the cover now. You didn't take the cover because you're didn't. on the my cover. I didn't. Gita Kennedy from, actually, um, if I can say, she's from Limerick. She's a fantastic photographer. Well, she's originally from Denmark, but she's married an Irishman. And she took the, um, the front and the back covers. Uh, and then everything else in there is from, yeah, my photography. And my friend Sonia came over from the States to help me do the styling part. And it's geared up for the Irish market and the US market. It is. It's very, so you've had very flashy launches in New York. and <laughs> Yes, I was Dublin. in New York. I was in a couple of New York uh, launches. Dublin. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's been so much lately. I just got back from Dublin and last week, which is so much fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm just getting into the groove of it, and then I suppose it'll be kind of done. But it is the book, after three weeks, it went into the second printing, which is pretty big because the first print run was quite large as it was. So, I mean, I was shocked you to hear. tell us how many? Uh, no, I, well, it was 10,000. Wow, that's incredible. Well, it's 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 not too bad for a first-time author. That's, Fantastic, yeah. yeah. You, should, uh, you should be very proud. I hope you are very proud. I am proud. I'm just, you know, I think I'm just in shock over everything. I, I love that it's been received well. But yeah, it's in the States and it's here. It's actually everywhere. Somebody sent me, It was in. it's in Tokyo. Not translated, but... It's, yeah, it has worldwide distribution. And the reason I'm saying about it being geared for the US and the Irish market is because there's probably a difference in the measurements and things like that. I see in the contents page here, you have the conversions. Um, in it, every recipe has a conversion. It has both um, imperial and metric measurements, so you can... Because it is a bit different in America, the way they use the cups. I see yeah, the cups. There. Yeah. Did you find it difficult to adjust to that yourself at the start? Or oh. is it easy just get a set of scales it's, and away you go? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, it was really hard at the start yeah. before. 
before I suppose I had my own kitchen and all my own measuring things. Like I was saying to you when we were here for Thanksgiving that I, I cooked a Thanksgiving meal here before I moved over because Richard and I dated for like a year and a half, almost two years transatlantically before. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I thought the one this one year that I would do a Thanksgiving at the farm and I brought stuff in my suitcase <laughs> But that was the first time I cooked here, and so the the Celsius and Fahrenheit, every everything was so foreign. Full. I cannot, to be honest, I can't believe I did it. Like it was a and it was a huge meal too, but sur- survived it. But yeah, that was a, quite a learning curve. But I think at this stage, the listeners are saying, "Ask her how she met Richard." Oh yeah, well you can read it on my blog too. <laughs> I just actually wrote about it. Um, I think the title of the blog post is "Well, You're My Valentine." Do you, do you know the story, Sharon? Oh, on, okay. Tell us the story. I do know the story, but tell us. Okay. So he was visiting friends that live in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. They actually own a series of real Irish pubs there. Um, I won't mention the family name, I suppose. But anyway, he was over visiting uh, one of his schoolmates that he graduated school with. And we just met out. You know, it wasn't anything fancy or any. You know, nothing too romantic there. But then he, we, we kind of hit it off on that night. We chatted away for the entire evening. And I just couldn't believe here's I was talking to this Irish farmer with a degree in philosophy. And, but he was so funny and so warm. And he asked me out to dinner. So I agreed. I brought my friends with just to be safe. Um, I mean, not safe, but, you know, you can never be too safe. And we had this gorgeous meal and the best night and just burgundy was flowing it had the most beautiful meal and laughter and it just was really great and then he actually got up um towards the end of the meal and disappeared came back turns out he got up and paid for the entire meal for everybody and then he later told us that but then I pitched in later because I wasn't going to allow that. But just the point that he did that was so interesting because it was his birthday on top of it. I mean, he was just so modest and just chivalry wasn't dead on him and just a really lovely fellow. So um, he was leaving like two days later. I was a little bit smitten, but not 100% because I just went back to my work and, you know, I was really into my work. And I got to my office on the morning of Valentine's and he was leaving that day. And there was a big, well, first of all, I walked in and everybody had like these big Cheshire cat smiles looking at me. And I was like, what is going on? So I got into my office and there was a huge bouquet of flowers. And I mean, like five feet to like massive on my desk and the little card that read. Oh, well, he had asked me, sorry, oh, go back. He asked me who my Valentine was going to be. And I said, my father. And when I got the card, it said, well, you're my Valentine. Oh, so, yeah. So he, romantic. It was, yeah, he kind of won the me over. Limerick men are so romantic. I know. <laughs> Jeffrey's laughing yes, there. Is your dad son. still very romantic, Jeffrey? Well, maybe 50, 60, 90%. Well, that's good. 90% is fantastic, so it is. Yeah, that's great. Now, you've been all around the place, as we said, for the book launches, and Jeffrey and Richard have gone with you. That must have been, it must be nice to be able to share the experiences. Very well. nice. It was, yeah. And I, I felt that I couldn't do it without, I mean, like like I said, at the launch in Dublin, you know, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't, there would not be a book if it wasn't for Richard, you know. Um, it's lovely to have the support with, and it's lovely for people to meet them, it's, in particular, you know, Jeffrey, of course, because he's just a sweetheart and he's great, fun, everybody loves him, but just to meet Richard, the Irish farmer, and, you know, for him to talk a little about it, about his family and the farm and stuff is really nice for people, too. And you're going to be at Lit Fest. Tell us what you're up to at Lit Fest. Okay, so um, we, I'm going to Lit Fest. Jeffrey and I are doing a campaign with Kerrygold called Create with a K. So we're developing a series of recipes with Kerrygold, and then we're going to be doing a couple demos on the day, kind of the cooking with your kids um, thing. And then I'm doing a lens and larder workshop on the Sunday. And the lens and larder then, the workshop, is it a food styling type workshop that you're doing with people there? Yes, it's a like a one day um I think it's, I think I think Litfest is charging like twenty euros. So it's basically like an afternoon, like three three and a half four hours with yeah. Yvette um, Van Boven. And she's in Amsterdam, a Dutch photographer and stylist and illustrator, and her husband, who's also a photographer. So they're it's going to be more of a um, more of like a 
like a seminar type thing rather than a hands-on. So there'll be like a multimedia presentation and Kleena and I will be on Kleena Prendergast. Well, yes, um, tell us about Kleena because you yeah. haven't talked about her. And sure. she, she's your partner in crime. And just to let listeners know that Ballymoo Lit Fest is the 20th to the 22nd of May. Yes, and the Lens and Larder is on the 22nd. And Kleena Prendergast is my amazing partner in crime for Lens and Larder. She also has her own, um, it's uh, her own Cooking with Children series of beautiful films called Breaking Eggs. And um, she's just a brilliant creative, a Bally Malou trained chef and lovely all around person. So she's a great partner. And so we've been, or we've organized all the Lens and Larders together um, and they've been a great success. Fantastic. It's just amazing what you've done, like to come from the producing commercials to the farm in West Limerick to write in the blog, to be doing workshops, all these recipes. And I have to, you just, whenever you were talking there about your mother-in-law and about Mm -hmm. her calming influence, I remembered um, one of your blogs about the barbecue that you'd organised a barbecue at the house and you looked outside and it was raining and you were just fraught like it was a disaster whereas like we we have barbecues in that has to rain to have a barbecue in Ireland I thought that was very funny it was very funny that was a good one I remember um, yeah we get on with it that's what was told to me and I was in tears (laughs) I couldn't believe it so what is next for Iman well um what is next is just to get through these, uh, not to, not that I can't get through, but just there's a lot of work and stuff coming up. We're doing, I'm doing um, a series of pop-up dinners at Kildare Village, which is related, it's called From the Isle, and it's related to the Sew Collective, which is a new boutique in the village that's all indigenous um, Irish des- designers and wears beautiful clothing and beautiful things so we're doing kind of a series of pop-up dinners featuring um, real Irish ingredients Kleena and I again Um, and that's called From the Isle so we're doing three dinners there and then Lip Fest and Lens and Larder and then I'm going home back home to the States for um, six weeks this summer so I'll be doing some book things there but I'll also just be chilling out and visiting my family because I haven't been back I didn't get to go back last summer. And so that's kind of it. Besides, we have this little film thing that might be happening. But that's, yes, that's no, on, we're not going to say it. No, we can't. We can't. I'll come back thing. and tell you more about that another time. <laughs> well, we will hold you to that. So okay. we will. In the meantime, the book, it is the Farmet Cookbook. And what's your blog? Farmet.ie. Farmet.ie. And this is available in all good bookshops, I presume, and online through Amazon and whatnot. How much is it? If you get it on Amazon, it's 25 that's But if you buy it in the bookstore, it's like 35 So go to Amazon. Um, and then lensandlarder.com. Your local bookshop. Sorry. Well, and you have a website for Lensandlarder.com is, is the food photography and styling workshops. So Fantastic. Listen, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Sharon. I love coming. to see Jeffrey. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Thanks so much for tuning in to a second Helpings edition of Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Please check out the podcast of all the Best Possible Taste shows on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. Until next time, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!